the acclaimed director of the wedding banquet. The Samuel Goldwyn Company presents Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. <clears throat> the story of three sisters looking for a recipe for romance. And their father, one of the world's great chefs, trying to understand the ingredients. In this family, if you can't cope, you can always cook. Three women with a taste for life. And dad, just trying to stay on the menu. One part laughter. One part passion. With a dash of intrigue. Honor. And adventure mixed in. Eat, drink, man, woman. From director Ang Lee and the creators of last year's surprise hit, The Wedding Banquet. Family life as you've never tasted it before. Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks John. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, so we're recording uh, one day after Halloween, so November the 1st. Obviously, when this comes out, it'll be a little later, a few days later. But how was Halloween for you? Uh, it was fairly quiet. I spent the day indoors, um, watching films and uh, writing about them. Uh, in terms of Halloween celebrations, um, the closest uh, sort of my household came to them was my mother and sister carving pumpkins and um, watching horror films. I, I didn't realize that was a thing. The pumpkins were a thing in, in the UK. Yeah, we do it in the UK. Um, I think it's a tradition that originally came from Ireland and oh. went over to America of Irish immigrants. I see. Okay, that's uh, that, uh, that's interesting information, I guess. Yeah, there's uh, a big Irish uh, immigrant community in the UK there, or has been for a very, very long time. So. I mean, that makes sense. It's right, right next door. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Some of my ancestors are Irish, so. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, it was it was quite for me too. I, uh, despite the pandemic, I still expected to have trick or uh, trick or treaters. So I bought a bunch of candy, and of course, we didn't have any. Uh, so now okay. I'm stuck with a bunch with a couple bags of candy that I must get rid of somehow. Hopefully not by eating them. Although that's a very distinct possibility. Mm. Can you take them into a workplace? Well, I work. Share them I work from home, so I can. <laughs> yes, uh, but I'm not sure that's going to help my uh, my situation. Yeah, uh, but it's okay. I'll I'll figure something out. Yeah, we didn't get any trick or treaters around my way, but that's uh, in recent years we've had trick or treaters. But I figure that's more of an American thing, and with COVID nineteen, it's not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I thought it's you no, know, it's not, but I, I still thought you know you can because I did. I mean, I see kids playing outside all the time because I'm I'm in sort of a suburban uh, neighborhood, um, yeah. and uh, I figured since I see kids outside playing all the time pretty you know like normal actually the adults are careful but i think they are allowing the kids to to still be kids so i figured if they're doing that they might as well you know have be prepared yeah but but i guess i guess that was the the line that they wouldn't cross hmm. uh, but it's okay i mean i was i'm mostly upset that now i have all this candy that i i don't know what to do with but i'm not i mean i'm fine with their not being trick-or-treaters this year <laughs> well it's better than having your house egged 
for a trick. Yeah, well, I mean, I yeah, I, I mean, I've ne- that's never occurred to me. But I also never, I've mostly lived in in city apartments, never in suburbs. So I don't, I don't know how much of a thing that is. Yeah. Well, you see it in American movies, so I assume it happens. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it, uh, a lot of those movies is like I don't, I don't know how much of a representation of reality that is, but it may as well be. Uh, yeah, like um, to 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 give a movie example, have you are you familiar with uh, John Hughes movies from the eighties? Oh, like Pretty in Pink Breakfast and the Breakfast Club. Club. Yeah, so I don't like those movies because the way I see it, they don't represent. Um, what a teenager is really like. I feel like they're like the way I see them. They're very fictionalized, romantic versions of oh, oh, that are far off the mark of what a teenager is like. But I, I mean, the reason they struck a chord must be because they're just you know they, there must be some teenagers out there who feel like that. So so I think I feel like that's it's the same thing. Just because I did not experience it, um, uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't someone or some culture out there in the either in the US or the world that doesn't doesn't have to deal with that sort of thing. I don't I I kind of saw them as nostalgia bait from an adult perspective. Sort of, yeah, so yeah, would, sort of. Yeah, an idealized teenhood that we all wish we could have. Yeah, and everything is exaggerated like the drama, the 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 sense of rebellion uh, or anything. Yeah. Um but anyway, well that's uh, uh today that's Aside from that, today we're discussing the episode that we were supposed to discuss uh, last week, um, the but we moved it because of Halloween, uh, and we're going to discuss Ang Lee's uh, 1994, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a drama, Taiwanese drama, Eat, Drink, Men, Woman. However, before we get into that, why, we, we have to first do our segment where we discuss what movies have we seen or what books have we read for in the last couple of weeks? So why don't you go first, Jason, and uh, tell us about your week or weeks? Well, I've started reading um, The Summer of Ubume by uh, Natsuhiko Kyogoku. And uh, it's a supernatural or mystery horror uh, story. It was published about 10 years ago. I've had it sitting on a shelf for 10 years and I finally got around to starting reading it. And um, it seems like it's about a hack writer for a tabloid and his best friend who's a bookshop owner who doubles up as a priest, a Shinto priest, uh, also uh, a Buddhist one. He's just a general master of um, mysticism and the supernatural. And uh, they're investigating uh, the case of a woman who could be pregnant for about 20 months. So I'm looking forward to finishing that because then uh, I can start the anime... um, Murio no Hako, which is by uh, which is based on uh, another story by the same author, and I think the Summer of Ubume is sort of like a, a prequel story. Oh, interesting! Yeah, I was going to ask because I'm obviously not familiar with the author, but I was going to ask: Do they have have they had any of their stories adapted into something that I might be familiar with? Yeah, just, uh, as far as I'm aware, just this one anime, uh, which is which is like um, six episodes. Okay. Again, I've had it. For a number of years, I just haven't had the chance to uh, watch it because I've been waiting to read the book. Uh, in terms of what I've watched, uh, because it's Halloween, I've um, just uh, indulged my uh, love of horror movies and I've watched a lot of uh, scary stories. Um, 
uh, Mario Bava films like Black Sunday and Black Sabbath. Dario Argento films like A uh, Phenomena and um, Deep Red. Uh, at the Purge, the first Purge film. Oh, okay. um, the, the only one in the series that I haven't seen yet. I've seen the others in the cinema. Um, and I started watching um, the Nicolas Cage movie, The Color Out of Space, which is based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story. But it's um, a modern adaptation. Yeah, I, I, I should watch that because I'm, a, I'm generally a big fan of... Um pulp literature from that era not necessarily lovecraft but that style so i i should should check out the color of out of um the color from outer uh, out of space is it is that the title yeah it's on amazon prime so uh maybe it's there in america oh yeah it, i it, i know it's available and in fact i did da- i i did plan to watch it at some point i downloaded the short story i don't remember if it's a short story or or a, a novella but it's fairly short it's very easy, quick i think looking at the size of it because all of his works are in the public domain or i think most of his works are in the public domain so anybody can get it so i downloaded that but i just haven't gotten around to reading it yet and i think that's what my plan was to read the story and then check out the film on amazon prime yeah it's uh i think all he ever published were short stories in um, weird tales magazine and um, a couple of other pulp literature magazines yeah that was the uh, dominant form uh of of the genre the until even even genres like pulp fantasy and science fiction which is separate but did arise from the pulps were dominated by short uh short short fiction and, and of course even novels were published but they were generally serialized in magazines i think novels did not start become to become prevalent until after the second world war and that's there was almost a reversal then the the art of the short stories like slowly started to die and novels and even novel series became the main thing that people could market okay that's interesting but anyway that's a yeah sorry to sorry to derail you no that's fine it's uh always learning something new uh yeah the the film is a modern adaptation it's well worth reading the original short story is actually really heartbreaking um and yeah i've watched uh in terms of Asian movies, um, The Horse Thieves, uh, Roads of Time, uh, which is uh, Kazakhstan slash Japan co-production. Is that related to the, there's a, I think, I don't remember if it's Chinese or or Taiwanese. There's an, an 80s film called The Horse Thieves, very, very pop, very famous, very well known. I don't think it's related to it okay. in any way. It seems like it's a standalone story. Okay. Um, I'll have to look into that Taiwanese film. Um, uh, it was uh, I, I got it from I think Martin Scorsese recommend, uh, recommended it as one of his favorite films. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's the Horse Thief. Uh, sorry, by uh, it's not plural. It's a it's a singular, but singular. But uh, from yeah. uh, Tian Zhuang uh, Zhuang, and it's a Chinese film from 1984. And I um, okay. Yeah, he he listed it as a as a, one of his favorite films yeah, of the '90s because apparently it, it it's an '80s film, but it didn't came to come to the U.S. until the '90s. Uh, so he did list it there. But again, I don't think it's related. It's just a coincidence. So again, but please keep keep going. Yeah, and um, I watched the 1999 and reviewed the film um, uh, *Gemini* by Shinya Tsukamoto, which is going to be released by Third Window Films on November second. 
So it will already be released by the time this podcast comes out. And that's an, an adaptation of an Edogawa Rampo uh, short story called The Twins. And it's a psychological horror uh, done with um, Shinya Tsukamoto's uh, distinctive aesthetic style. And um, it's got a lot of class uh, critiques in there as well. It's quite quite an interesting uh, short, uh, quite an interesting film. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Uh, so I had, um, I also had some nice viewing experiences the last couple of weeks. I didn't watch as many horror films uh, as I as as I did last time. I kind of slowed down. One notable one that I saw uh, just uh, actually two days ago was uh, The Howling Two. Okay, is that the uh, sequel to the Jack Nicholson? Yeah, and it stars Christopher Lee. Okay, it is, it is terrible in almost every way, but I still had good time watching it. Yeah. A lot of gratuitous nudity, and in fact, it even ends with like a very silly montage of of like a lot of the nude pieces in the uh, in the film. Uh, I it, okay. I was just free on Amazon Prime, and I was looking to do something, and I and I just watched it. Yeah, they've got a uh, sort of a wide variety of um, horror films. Quite a lot of them are, aren't so great. <laughs> no, but uh, free to view. Yeah, exactly. And of course. Uh, I could not not watch the new Borat film. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the election is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. It's a couple of days as we're recording. Uh, we'll be over by the time this is out, but as we're recording, it's a couple of days away. But yeah, I watched the second Borat film. Very funny. I, I, I watched it twice. One Once with by myself and once with a friend. And... Um, and I, I, it was very funny. I, I don't think it was as funny as the first one simply because I think the novelty... Um, the novelty has kind of worn off, but I, I still did think despite that, like that was a huge hurdle to overcome. And I think they still mm. managed to do a great job, you know, considering, you know, the fact that they had to, to they had to, this uh, whole baggage from the first movie that they had to somehow, not necessarily beat, but get over. Hmm. I watched uh, a South Korean film that I'm actually reviewing for V-Cinema called Moving On, about I don't remember the director. The director I think is just a first-time director. Uh, that uh, this is her first feature film about a family struggling with a divorce and having to move into their parents, so into their grandfather's house to to kind of as a measure to deal with economic hardships. And uh, I thought it was very well done. A very moving story. Mm. Um, I've read. I've reread. Uh, 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 Ernesto Sabato's novel The Tunnel. Uh, it's an old. Uh, he, he's an Argentinian author uh, who only wrote three books, I think, in his life. He was he was a physicist who then became a painter, who then became a novelist. Uh, a very strange character, and then he was also a journalist at some point, I think. Uh, but this is a novel that I've read for the first time in high school, and I revisit it either every year or every couple of years. It's very short, uh, uh, and it's really easy to read. But I, it's it's. It's one of my favorite uh, books to read. That and the Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky are two novels that I visit very, very often. Uh, okay. Because they're short, but because they also uh, have a certain appeal that I really enjoy. Um, yeah. The tunnel especially is just unlike most novels, especially in style of writing. You can uh, This was, I think, his first novel, and you can tell there's almost a scientific quality to it. 
uh, by the way, very, very analytical and logical way in which he writes this one and that I, uh, I think it, it makes it stand out. And just as I promised last time, I just started reading Piercing by Ryu Murakami. Um, I'm very, very early in it, so I'm not still sure what's going on. I'm still at the part where he's thinking about killing his son. Uh, mm. um, uh, like the first chapter or so. Or he's having, uh, he, he has a fear uh, of fearing his, uh, of, of that he might kill his newborn son. And that's that's where I'm at right now. So I have no idea what the story is even going to be about. I've read nothing uh, about the novel, but uh, I, I like like I mentioned last time, I really enjoy his style of writing, his straightforwardness. So I think I'm going to enjoy this one. Plus, it's a short novel, and uh, uh, that's always a plus for me. That's like I, this is at a uh, about 200 pages, and for me, that's the ideal size of a novel. I don't like um, I don't like uh, big either big series or big 800 page novels. That seems seems to be the trend now. Of course, I really like Dostoevsky, and he he writes huge novels, but that's more of an exception than um, uh, than the norm for me. Yeah, isn't a character in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman reading Dostoevsky? Yeah, I, I yeah, I think the, I think I'm pretty sure the writers were just looking for something impressive to insert in there. I tried to look into yeah. um, uh, into what that might mean, but I I didn't necessarily find anything that he did. He doesn't even say what book by Dostoevsky. He just says Dostoevsky, and that just uh is thrown in there i i haven't read anything by dostoevsky so um when that name comes up all i can imagine is suffering yeah i mean he's it's he's a surprisingly um entertaining author to read they're not uh especially his longer novels they're uh they almost have um a, a soap opera quality to it to them oh. uh and that's, i say that in a, in 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 the good uh, as a as a compliment in that they really draw you in with the characters um because of course i mean like one thing that we forget about these old authors uh they're known for their philosophical musings but they still had to sell stories to the masses uh and yeah. they had to serialize and you know the story had to be gripping from issue to issue for it to keep the readers um to keep to keep reading so so they're very entertaining some of his shorter novels like notes from the underground is uh literally half of that is a philosophical essay and the other half is a story which i think is very good but you have to get through the first half which is no story at all it's literally the the ram- the philosophical ramblings of a madman <laughs> okay yeah uh but i recommend i recommend getting getting some of his best known stuff and just looking into it because i think he's a very entertaining author he and tolstoy both are okay well um i suppose i'll get around to it eventually yeah <laughs> or and, and of course since they're in public domain there are many free uh audiobook versions so if you just ah. if you just don't feel like like carrying a, a 600 page book around you all the time you can just put it on your phone get uh, i think the librivox app that has a bunch of them and just listen that's a good idea Okay, I'll definitely search one out and uh, try to concentrate on it instead of having it on in the background. <laughs> yeah, that that's always a risk with audiobooks um, or listening to podcasts, for example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we go into our uh, our d- discussion of the film, I also would like to go. That I have a couple of news items written here, and you can add anything if you want, Jason. First, there's a, a new Wong Kar Wai uh, film. Uh, about to be released. I know nothing about it. I didn't read other, the, anything except the title. I'm not sure if you have any more information. 
No, I, I was um, quite taken aback by this news. Uh, I haven't uh, read anything about it. Um, I, I, I've heard that he's uh, working on a sequel to Chunking Express. Yeah, so it's it's called uh, Blossoms, and uh, I, I it's either shooting or about to start shooting, uh, or maybe just done shooting. I'm not sure. I think the hmm. uh, yeah the article that I'm reading that I'm looking at here is uh, uh, is a bit old, so it might have already been done shooting. But he's sort of working on a new film. I guess that's uh, that's all we can say. While also not being completely inaccurate with our information. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, on the Wikipedia page, page it says, um, focuses on numerous characters in Shanghai from the 1960s to the 2000s. Okay, well, that's a very broad description, but uh, mm. but uh, better than nothing, I guess. Mm. And we've also had just this past week, I don't remember if it was during the week or a weekend, so a week from today ago, but uh, the, uh, the Asian Film Awards uh, were just carried out and um, Parasite won Best Film, but it did not win Best Director. Best Director went to Wong uh, Jiao Shai for a film called So Long, My Son, which I know nothing about. Mm. Best Actor went to Lee Byung Hoon for a film called The Man Standing. The Man Standing Next. Uh, I think it's a political thriller from what I can see. I haven't seen it. Uh, and Best Actors went to Zhu Jong Ku, Better Days, another Chinese film. Parasite also won Best Screenplay and Best Editing uh, and Best Production Design, but it, those are the only four awards that he won. Uh, I was mm. expecting it to win Best Director. I was really surprised by that. I wasn't expecting it to win Best Actor. I'm not surprised for that, but but uh, I thought it would win Best Directors. Uh, and I've, I haven't heard of this other Chinese film that did win so long, my son. Yeah, I haven't read too much about it. Um, Better Days, I had the chance to watch it in March, February, March, but I missed it. And um, it's with deep regret because everybody I've spoken to who's watched it said uh, brilliant things about it. Yeah, and I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a reteaming of the uh, director uh, and I think the writer and the actresses, uh, the lead, one of the lead actresses from the fil- uh, film Soulmate which was a massive hit uh, two years ago. And I think Better Days is based on a Japanese novel. And it's okay. like this harrowing story uh, about bullying and um, this girl who's um, competing to uh, pass her tests to get into um better university becomes the target of some rich bullies in her school. And this street kid protects her and something bad happens. And it's like uh, they only have each other to uh, protect themselves yeah there's a japanese film uh, nominated for best film called listen to universe to the universe i'm wondering if you've seen that one no i haven't okay well uh, listen to the universe uh, that's that's that that's the title to the wikipedia although when i click on it there's nothing it just takes me to the uh author's page i'm not sure i guess it's the the novel the guy who wrote the novel uh, his name is mm. R- riku uh, Onda. I'm not sure if it's a he or a she. Uh, sounds like a, a, a man's name. Okay. No. Uh, like of the Japanese films, uh, like I haven't actually watched any of them. Although I do have a couple of them, I just haven't had the chance to watch them. I have seen a girl missing who was nominated for best actress for Mariko Tsutsui, and I've seen that one. Mm. I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I reviewed it for V Cinema. Uh, a very worthy film to watch if you can get your hands on it. Mm, yeah, it's um, 
directed by Koji Fukada. Fukada, yeah, and he's got a whole um, strand, a whole sidebar at the Tokyo International Film Festival dedicated to him, and that's one of the films that's playing. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's a really good director. Um, he's making big waves in the industry. Um, it, in terms of the movies he's uh, making and in terms of helping to improve working conditions in Japanese, uh, in the Japanese movie world. Uh, and if you can watch any, like he's probably most famous for Harmonium. Yeah. Yeah. That, that and he also stars the same actress. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And um, his latest one is the real thing, which was selected for the Cannes film festival this year. Oh, nice. Of course that, that didn't go ahead. So it's been uh, playing, at other festivals. Okay. Uh, out of curiosity, are you? Do you usually follow the Asian Film Awards? Uh, occasionally, it's um, usually um, I just look at the headline winners and I don't look at the nominees. Okay. Yeah, I've been following this since the very beginning. For some reason, I'm drawn to it. It started in 2006, so it's only been going for about 14 years. Uh, yeah. And I distinctly remember that uh, uh, another Bon Joon-ho film won that time, and it was uh, uh, The Host. Okay. Yeah, and and of course at the time, that was in the mid-2000s, where South Korean cinema was at, at the very top. So there was, a, I think for the first few ones, uh, the, the first five or six of these awards, the Korean, Korean cinema dominated, uh, mm. followed by maybe Japanese and Hong Kong cinema, and then it sort of be- it became more diverse. In fact, I don't think there was even an Indian film uh, competing until like, several years into the awards don't don't quote me on it because i obviously don't remember every nominee but i uh i think it was um it, it was mostly dominated by these you know hong kong a uh, south korea japan and maybe mainland china and then it started becoming a wider parts of asia that took uh that began to uh become more uh, serious contenders into the awards yeah, looking at this year's winners, I, c- I can't see any Southeast Asian movies. Uh, they're mostly East Asian. Well, there, there's an Indian film. Uh, there's mm. a Thai film. Uh, yeah, there, uh, Happy Old Year. That's, there's a, there's uh, a um, what is this? Uh, a Singaporean film. Mm. Um, and I'm pretty sure I saw Turkish. Did I? Am I? I gotta I gotta uh, review my flags, but uh, a Pakistani. Oh, Uzbekistani film. Yeah, so there is there, there is some diversity. Obviously, you're right; it is dominated by those East Asian countries. But either you do see other uh, other cinemas pop up uh, every now, you know, on every one category or another. Mm. Okay. Yeah, but generally, I've been following because I do. I've often found myself really respecting their choices and their decisions, uh, and I've always found very good recommendations by looking at either the award winners or uh because that's one way to awards you know whatever whatever you think of awards that's a great way to to get acquainted with new films even if you don't always agree with their choices but i've I've always found that not only i agree with my with their choices very often in, in these awards uh but they also serve as excellent recommendation not only the winners but also the nominees so that's why i've i've kind of been a fan of this award ceremony Okay, uh, I'll keep a closer eye on it in the future. Uh, and also, kind of thinking about this, and sorry to delay uh, jumping into our discussion just a little bit longer, but uh, like I just mentioned briefly that when the awards store started, it seemed that the Asian cinema, at least 
when exporting to the outside seems to be dominated either by South Korean cinema and maybe Hong Kong cinema or not so much Hong Kong but Japanese cinema uh but right now who do you what Asian country do you think dominates the exports of their um of their cinema to the west and again we're focused on the west that might not necessarily be their priorities but because we're western viewers we we can only use that as a measure so what 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 country would you say is currently dominating the market um and sorry to put you on the spot like this i i didn't i didn't i know you, you didn't give you any time to think and i haven't thought about it much myself but i'm just uh, i think it's a nice uh point of discussion interesting question um i would say south korean cinema in terms of what i've seen Japanese cinema seems to be uh programmed more because people are more familiar with names and um there are various studios like Warner Brothers who are adapting um comic books or manga into um what they hope to be uh blockbuster movies that could appeal to foreign markets it uh Korean films are still riding on the K-pop wave. Um, Chinese films I see quite often in cinemas. Um, I think that's to appeal mostly to Chinese students who are living abroad. Uh, it's, it's a real mix at the moment. In terms of uh, film industries that are positioning themselves to be more global, um, I suppose... Yeah, it's really difficult to answer. Um, I can't say any one in particular. Do you have any ideas? No, I, I mean part. That's part of the reason why I, I pose the question because I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure what the answer is. I know that, for example, the Chinese film industry is is putting is using a lot of resources into their films, but they're not. They don't necessarily need to export because they have by sheer population. The, their domestic market is is uh, wide enough to sustain the industry, mm. um, and that's not necessarily true for uh, other for other countries in Asia. However, they they do seem to make to have to try to export um, other films. Like one example was the uh, the Quiet Earth. No, the the Wandering Earth. Was that a neck? Netflix film. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like they are trying to edge out, but I, I still think their most popular movies are dependent on propaganda, like the Wolf series, like the Lone... Um, there's a bunch of military films that they were very popular in China, but they, they tried to export, but they weren't successful because they're just very propaganda-focused. Yeah. it's um, You see um, South Korean production companies making lots of deals with Netflix and um, getting their um, movies onto uh, video on demand services. And um, I think that was a trend that was happening before COVID-19, but has been accelerated by it. In terms of Japan, definitely the anime market is looking towards um, uh, foreign territories to bring in new sources of income. So there's been uh, big pushes to um, put a lot of content on streaming services, both classic content and um, contemporary content, and films that um, have a wide foreign appeal. But still, a lot of movies are made for the Japanese market. And um, 
the industry, the anime industry is still somewhat reliant on like um, home movie purchases in Japan. But there's a growing awareness of the power of foreign cash, and Netflix is aggressively and Amazon aggressively and, moving and Crunchyroll, into, which is a very popular streaming yeah. service that's exclusively on uh, anime. But okay, so <laughs> well, that's going to be apparently it's going to be bought by Sony for like um, close to a billion dollars. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I'm I'm kind of inkling to say it's a good thing for for the anime industry. Sony owns a couple of big. Um, anime distribution labels. Um, Funimation is their biggest, and they. Oh, they I have, didn't realize um, they own that. I believe they own it, and um, so that would like that would be great to use in American terms synergy that they can bring all of these titles under one roof. Um, there won't be any competition though. Yeah. So well, there's one thing I'd like to add though that when I was thinking of my question, I didn't mention this, but I was I was I almost did that. Uh, uh, there's an asterisk, an asterisk to it that is says excluding anime because I think if you include anime into the equation, Japan is the clear winner. Uh, but I also my reason for maybe trying to answer the question without including anime into the mix is because at least what I've observed in the U.S., the anime audience is very big, but it's also not a cinephilic audience. It's almost separate from from what what you would consider foreign cinema goers. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that uh, the popularity of of like Japanese anime does not necessarily reflect the popularity of of the rest of Japanese cinema uh, to the West. I don't think there's there's some overlap there, but I don't think there's much overlap there. I don't know if that's that's the same with with what you've observed, but that's just been my personal experience with with anime and the rest of uh, Japanese cinema. Yeah, I I there's. There's the occasional, I, yeah, I don't see much crossover between audiences, um, apart from like maybe with Takashi Miike or when you've got a live action adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. No, as far as, uh, so yeah, I, I would agree with you that it seems like Japan has a higher presence, but I'm not sure. Hmm. And I'm just, I'm, I'm skeptical to speculate without data in front of me, but just, I have this gut feeling that, that the highest, the high presence of Japanese cinema in, say, the festival circuit does not necessarily reflect the popularity of Japanese cinema, say, in like the, uh, the average streaming f- cinema consumption. Uh, whereas I think South Korea is doing better there. I think South Korean cinema probably has broader appeal. Yeah, that's that's that that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah. So I think I think it's safe to say that, for instance, for most like the first part of the post-war twentieth century, from let's say fifties to seventies, Japanese cinema dominated uh, the Western export among Asian countries, uh, and that's kind of mm. evident from you know its its high presence in the foreign category of the Academy Awards. Then around the seventies, Hong Kong started to rise. Um. Uh, with the Bruce Lee being sort of the you know, on the forefront of that, and then slowly the rest of Hong Kong cinema catching up, and then becoming at their most popular in the eighties, uh, and then yeah. them they're declining in the nineties, and then South Korea sort of taking over uh, in the two thousand, and those, in my opinion, are obvious trends to observe. Whereas now with a, with a high prevalence of streaming, and especially st- streaming services, not necessarily revealing their data, their uh, uh, their viewing information 
I think it's very hard right now to kind of make that judgment and say, oh, these markets are doing very well, or even, even it might be even more more uh, accurate to talk about sub-markets now, but you can't even just talk about Japanese cinema or South Korean cinema. There's parts of Japanese cinema that are maybe doing very well and other parts of Japanese cinema that are not doing well at all, and same for the other um, uh, the other countries in Asia. Yeah, I, I, I broadly agree with that in terms of the different uh, waves of national cinemas taken over. Like um, in recent years, there's been a major push to sort of re, uh, rediscover Japanese cinema from the 80s. Uh, that was the time when Hong Kong took over. And right now, there's definitely a sense that anime is carrying the Japanese film industry. And, Absolutely. And when Parasite won big at the Oscars, um, there's a lot of soul searching in the uh, live action um, movie world in Japan as to you know, how can we um compete with south korea what is it uh we can do to appeal to uh uh foreign markets and there's been a lot of questioning about work practices um international co-productions and um right now it feels like korea's much more like china china should be the dominant force like you said earlier they're pumping a lot of money into making lots of like epic movies but they don't seem to be hitting whereas south korean cinema is spreading a lot more um uh quickly among streaming services and even um in cinemas yeah absolutely and it's funny because um just the year before uh japan hit it big in the west with shoplifters uh, in my opinion a better movie even don't get me wrong. Shoplifters bored me to tears while watching it. Uh, very, oh. A very slow movie, but it's also an excellent, uh, an excellent film. Objectively speaking, in my opinion, a better film than Parasite, dealing with a lot of the same issues of issues of poverty yeah. and capitalism and and class differences and all that. But it's just commercially, I don't think it hit anywhere near the the levels of Parasite. No, I, I don't think so either. Like Parasite obviously had that Oscar push, which um, allows broader word of mouth than, say, um, winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes, even yeah. though the Palme d'Or at Cannes is like the highest accolade you can get yeah, but in the cinema world. I think Shoplifters, there was quite a lot of buzz at the time. Obviously, Shoplifters got only the foreign, and it didn't even get the win, I, I don't think. I think it's like a case that Parasite was an easier sell. In terms no, exactly. of story. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Roma like, won that year. Yeah, that's right. And like Shoplifters, like it's one of Hirokazu uh, Koreeda's um, best films. Uh, it's like the apotheosis of uh, a lot of his themes. Yeah. Um, but it's also like it's built on like his, his career. Like he's one of the best known Japanese directors uh, out there, one of the four Ks. And so uh, it, it had that boost. But um, Parasite was just an easier sell. Exactly. And it also it perhaps helped that uh, Bon Jo-Hu, uh, Bon Jo-Hu Hall, sorry for mispronouncing his name, people know who I'm talking about, <laughs> uh, kind of did his time, paid his price, so to speak, by already doing a couple of films in the West. Yeah, Snowpiercer and... Um, Ogja. Oh, the other one? Yeah, yeah uh, like, as, like he's, he's a household name. 
Yeah, both of which are entertaining, but I also think inferior to the rest of his filmography. But he did his yeah. time, you know, that was the price that he needed to pay. And then he went back and did something uh, that was kind of a return to form for him. And then he knew how to navigate the system, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's Coriada is like the uh, cinephiles director. He's yeah. he's got to be like on specialist programs, whereas um, Bong Joon Ho's like um, Snowpiercer is on Amazon Prime. It's on yeah. television, um, and um, Okia is on Netflix. So it's much more widely available. Yeah, and and I uh, like. <laughs> Correa is just one of those filmmaker that is a I've seen a few of his films and he, I just always fall asleep uh can't can't keep myself from staying away there's nothing I I can't say a bad word about him but oh god it's just it's really hard for me I don't know why maybe I'm just I've just been conditioned like a Pavlovian dog to just fall asleep <laughs> you know these films the same thing happens with me with Tarkovsky uh Stalker really? I consider Stalker to be a masterpiece I love the novel uh, they're very different. Okay. The novel by the Strugatsky brothers and Stalkers, maybe maybe one of the greatest films that I that I that I've seen. But I have to make an effort to stay awake during it. And the same thing with uh, the Mirror or with um, uh, Solaris. Nostalgia. Uh, nostalgia. Actually, nostalgia. I, I, it was a little bit easier for me to watch. I think maybe that's a little bit more um, approachable that um, hmm. he did in Italy. I think after he moved away from the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just it just it hits the right combination of brainwaves that, despite me appreciating so much on an objective level, it just puts my brain to sleep somehow. I don't know. Uh, so I apologize to anyone who who thinks they're very entertaining directors to watch. I agree, but somehow I just can't. Uh, and maybe it's because I never seen them in theaters. Maybe they make films that you have to see in a theater instead of having seeing them in your in the comfort of your own home, where you can just uh, get comfortable enough that you can't stay awake. I I don't know what it is, but it's just uh, what happens with me all the time. Yeah, that 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 is that can make a big difference. Like these films are made for cinemas. Okay, so I think we've we've uh, talked about other things enough, and I think it's about time we start to the movie of uh, we go into the movie that we're supposed to talk about this week, and that is Ang Lee's uh, 1994 Taiwanese film Eat, Drink, Men, Woman. I think it's his third film overall, and the third uh, film of the trilogy, the trilogy known as Father's Father Knows Best. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you do us the honor of summarizing the film for us? Okay, so uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman takes place in Taipei in the 1990s and follows Mr. Chu, a widower who is a master Chinese chef. He has three unmarried daughters. Eldest daughter, Jia Zhen, is a school teacher who is nursing a broken heart from her college days. She has converted to Christianity and is on her way to becoming a spinster when she meets a handsome coach at her school. Second daughter, Jia Chen, works as an executive in an airline company. She has inherited her uh, father's culinary skills, but he has refused to give her the opportunity to pursue a career in the kitchen. And youngest daughter, Jia Ning, is a college student who uh, gets involved with her friend's on-again, off-again boyfriend and starts a relationship with him. So this family gathers each Sunday for a banquet that Mr. Chu spends hours preparing. And it is at the dinner table that the family, uh, each member of the family makes an announcement. And each announcement signals a shift in the relationship between Mr. Chu and his girls as they grow older and more independent. And he negotiates a rapidly changing world. 
Okay, um, so uh, that was a great job. Thank you for giving us a summary. Uh, when did you first see this, and what did you think of it? Well, uh, I think I like the like with the Takashi Miike films last week audition. I first saw it in uh, high school. Uh, uh, Eat, drink, man, woman. I first saw it in high school as well, but I didn't last all the way through because I was more interested in the Miike films. Like at that time, it's like a short attention span, and more interested in horror movies like the um, Evil Dead trilogy, Dawn of the Dead, Audition, um, Visitor Q, and so forth. So I think I was a little too young to appreciate it. So um, watching it for this podcast was probably my second viewing, and uh, I made it all the way through, and I watched it again a couple more times, and I could appreciate it a lot more. It's funny that you say the opposite has happened with me. I think my attention span, uh, or maybe my patience, not necessarily my attention span, has gotten uh, quicker uh, as I grow up. I, I had a very, I was very patient as a teenager. Uh, hmm. I could sit through three, four-hour films or read huge books, no problem. <laughs> but now it's just, if it's not concise, if it just bits around the bush all the time, no thank you, moving on. Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a film that, um, I think it gains more, uh, like in terms of how much experience in life that the audience member has. And when I was a teenager, I was probably you know, very inexperienced. So, like the the various themes in the film, I could appreciate them on a surface level, uh, but I, I could not get into them. And also because it was a drama and it wasn't a horror film or a, or a crime film, it just wasn't uh, as gripping for me. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think I think I I like I've mentioned before in the show. I also saw it around high school, but uh, like I've explained it before, I was in the circumstance where I just couldn't wait to get out of the house, uh, to get out of there, uh, to move to a bigger place, to a different country, even. And uh, I think that kind of made me connect with maybe the middle daughter the most, who is, seems at least in the beginning of the film, the more eager to, uh, or the more worried about who's going to take care about dad. So it's mm. so the film appealed to me, and it's actually, it's actually, I remember distinctly this. This was the second Ang Lee film that I had seen. I had seen before this. I had seen the the wedding banquet, uh, which is I think the second part of the so-called trilogy of his. I, I don't think I've ever seen the first part, or if I have, I don't remember. But I watched it's the wedding pushing bag, hand, something like that. Yes, um, and I I remember w w being impressed by uh, the wedding banquet so much that I immediately sought after the this one, the following one. I'm pretty sure I looked for the first one and I just couldn't get it. And I think that's the reason. I think it's harder to find. Maybe not now, but at the time that I did see. Um, uh, it was harder to find, and uh, and I've seen this film. I've seen the Wedding Banquet maybe once or twice, but I've seen this film uh, uh, the most out of all of Ang Lee's film. I think I've seen every Ang Lee film only once, and this one is the one that I uh, I've seen uh, multiple times. I I think I revisit it every couple of years, and it's a film that I enjoy a lot. A lot. However, uh, I have to be honest and say that I was not particularly looking forward to this episode not because i don't enjoy this film but it's it's i i appreciate it on such an internal level on such an almost instinctual level that i kind of struggle to think about talking points and discussion points i don't know if that makes any sense to you mm, uh, i don't know if i mean let's I don't carry know if, no no i mean i've 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 
racked my brains and tried to find things to talk about. So I think we'll be fine. But I'm I'm not sure if that's ever happened to you with a film where you enjoy it in a, in a, such a unique level that when you try to talk about, you kind of come short. But that does not that doesn't necessarily mean it, it, the film is it's lesser for that reason. It's just you personally can't can't quite articulate why it is that you enjoy it so much. Yeah, I think that happens uh, to me with Basil Royale. <laughs> it's okay. probably the audition. <laughs> okay. It's like you have so much so much you want to say, but yeah, it's hard to say. Exactly. But I I've, I, I did try to kind of maybe uh, break down my thoughts on this. And uh, and I do think that the film kind of... Uh, it's a, And I think do, the film is a very personal story for Ang Lee. I don't know if it's autobiographical at all. I don't want to speculate, but it does feel like a very personal story for him and maybe that is why it just appeals to many hopefully not me alone but maybe to many other people on that personal level and even you mentioned that you do need some experience in order to appreciate it because that's 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 at the how how the film's emotional um arc works really Mm. i think uh this uh the father's the father knows best trilogy is um somewhat based on his experiences especially the one set in america where it's like a taiwanese family trying to adjust to a change in culture and um, different social norms and uh i can see how returning to taiwan and um having a story about um, confucian values where he, um, Ang Lee spent so much time in the States, he's returning back to his homeland and he's like seeing his parents for the first time. And um, like he's considering his own responsibilities to them yeah. after time away. Yeah. And it's almost like in the in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, there's uh, not the main family, but her friend who's, uh, whose name is, um, uh, what's her name? Jean Rong, right? Mm, they, they yeah, by Sylvia the Chang. Sylvia Chang character. Yes, and she there's always her part of her family is in America, and she's always talked about. Although we never see them, it's almost as if they're Angley's family, and now this movie is about the part of his family that did move to America, that stayed back in Taiwan, uh, almost. Yeah, there's there's a great um, sort of um, uh, it the film. Um, acknowledges like the Chinese diaspora, like the old yeah. characters talk about how they've traveled from mainland China to Taiwan, and the younger characters are saying their kids are now growing up Americans, and that's a really um, interesting aspect that plays into um, so many themes of the film, as well as being based on probably based on Ang Lee's own experience as a sort of expat in America. Yeah, I didn't know he moved with his family there. I, I always, I mean, I, I haven't read details about his biography. I always assumed that he just kind of moved himself either for studies or something along those lines. Yeah, I think he studied film there in America. And actually, one of his, uh, he was a, a classmate of Spike Lee. Oh, okay. And he worked on um, one of his student films. And uh, Ang Lee's talent was noticed, but he uh, struggled to make it as a filmmaker for a number of years. So he met uh, another Taiwanese person, a woman uh, in America, and they married and they had um, two sons and she was the breadwinner. And um, while he was waiting for his film career to lift off, he was like house husbands like, doing yeah. the cooking and so forth. She was, uh, she was a molecular biologist working at a university, I think. Yes, absolutely. Very intelligent person. Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, not, not a... As someone who does work in academia, is not a very high... Uh, high income job, although the the medical benefits are usually good, so at least they had good insurance. Uh, okay, 
but yeah, so that's that's already a very non-traditional uh non-traditional lifestyle for either an Asian person in America or in Asia, or at least for a Chinese person to sort of like blindly well maybe not so blindly i don't know what his prospects were at the time but kind of being patient and making some sacrifices to follow that kind of a dream instead of getting a more stable job um uh like you know like probably his parents would have wanted or at least you get that impression yeah i i think i read that his um father was like a principal of a very um well-established and um highly regarded school in Taiwan and um, his father had hoped for a more academic career for his son um, but his son um, didn't quite make the grade so he turned to movie making and um, he was picked up by a big um, talent agency in America but it was a question of waiting for that chance to happen Yeah, and that takes a lot of bravery yeah, and again, of course, his first films had to come, had to be funded by Taiwan, at least partially. I think even The Wedding Banquet, which is in English and, and uh, um, set in, a, uh, in the US, it's still either entirely or partially funded by a Taiwanese production company. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, uh, I think so, but definitely Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, that was um, picked up by a Taiwanese production company. Yeah, although one of the screenwriters is American. Yeah. I can't remember the chaps. James, James, Seamus, or something. Sh- yeah, and Seamus, he seems yeah. to be seems to be a writing partner for Ang Lee on a number of uh, his uh, films, and I think throughout the Father Knows Best trilogy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so this film, obviously, food is a big component of this film, and the way I see it, food represents culture. Uh, or represents tradition, or represents even a, a, a way of life, because we see at some point the father is kind of either looking recipes or creating recipes by looking at, at ancient, not ancient, but old uh, Chinese books that may or may not have anything to do with cooking. Like there's one scene where he says, oh, this herb uh, stimulates uh, sex or something like that. I don't remember, uh, enhances the sexual experience, something like that, uh, like old traditional remedies. I don't know if, if if you remember that scene in particular. Yeah, um, it was the scene where you've got these cats in heat. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. The eldest sister, the one on the way to spinsterhood, she's frazzled in the situation, and um, it it's it's kind of a uh, it it sort of wrong puts you like uh, like you consider his age and you don't consider him as a um, sexually active person and, yeah. and then you get that revelation at the end and it's like yeah. oh that, that was um foreshadowed earlier but um yeah um at the beginning of the film you've got this pan over a number of photographs of mr chu with various um chefs in different garbs and you get the sense that he studied under a lot of different people to learn Chinese cooking. And he, uh, when he goes to the hotel, he's like the embodiment of traditional Chinese cooking. And throughout the film, he complains that nobody in a globalized world, nobody can really appreciate it anymore. And also Chinese cooking, um, it has, it, China is a huge country and different regions have different specialities. So like, uh, dumplings and um, noodles are more popular in the north. And uh, rice is more popular in the south, and like all of these, and he's Mister Chu's got all of this heritage, all of these, uh, all of these cultural things um, that are being put out on the dinner table 
And um, I think if you know more about Chinese cooking, it's um, quite meaningful um, because there's a lot of symbolism involved in things like um, ducks and chickens and uh, so forth. They like they throw out names of different meals. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's it's the same in Japanese culture um, where you 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 sit down to have a meal and certain foods have certain uh, represent certain things like osechi ryori, which is a meal that um, people have at the start of the year. Like ebi, the shrimp um, has a bent back, and it's like longevity, and it's the same sort of dynamic happening in China as well, where you've got um, uh, 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 duck which represents fidelity so that's used in weddings for example yeah and i was gonna say every time they throw out all these names of foods um which uh a little sidetracking here it always makes me laugh a little bit because it reminds me of the god of cookery i don't know if you've seen that comedy film uh, it's uh, Stephen Chow. Stephen Chow. Yeah, I kind of. I, I'm. I don't think this is the case, but I always feel like that's a parody of this film. Uh, by how okay. they, they also throw <laughs> random names of food, but they're always like exaggerated, and their preparation is always exaggerated. So, like, it, that always reminds me of that film. But aside from that, in in eat, drink, men, woman, whenever they throw f- names of foods at the at the audience, I always feel like those are. Uh, they're meant to mean something more than just his impressive knowledge of recipes and his quick thinking and preparing food, but obviously not being from that culture. It's always, it always flies over my head. Um, yeah. And I'm sure someone has probably done written somewhere where they explain on this, but I, uh, at least I haven't found it. Um, yeah. However, there's a uh, speaking of the clash between modernity and tradition that is represented by uh, this, uh, culture of food ang lee doesn't doesn't waste any time he makes the metaphor i think is rather obvious from the very start of the film the film starts with this over a bird's eye view of a very busy street with chaos and motorcycles and cars and buses trying to get through to their daily jobs which is a i think a very obvious metaphor for the modern world and it was obviously contemporary to taiwan at that time which is considered a very technologically advanced uh country uh, and then immediately after he cuts to the this very traditional preparation of his first the first dinner, then we see a screen with his three daughters, and that scene goes uh, on for quite a while. I, I I didn't measure it, but at least a few minutes long. And I have to say, I don't think for as many times as I uh, uh, as I've seen this film, I don't think I've ever gone through that scene with it without feeling very hungry at the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> so Ang Lee has stated in interviews that um, he like he wanted to emphasize sort of like different um different aspects of uh food um through different senses so there's like close-ups on uh steaming hots uh crabs and uh absolutely and, yeah yeah and, and yeah he wants to get the taste buds flowing and what's what's even more unfortunate is there's no good chinese restaurant where i live at this point i had one in my previous city uh, that was authentic, or at least as authentic as we can get here in the U.S. But here, nearby, I only have those crappy Americanized Chinese food. So it just makes matters all the worse. Uh, <laughs> that's one reason why it's 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 hard to watch this film, because I just can't satisfy my cravings afterwards. I think perhaps you need to uh, schedule a holiday for, uh, to Taiwan uh, once COVID is over. Yeah, although uh, now there's always a risk that China will attack, so maybe not. But that's also... A, a, <laughs> 
a different topic. Uh, but yeah, I also, <laughs> he, every time I, just to, to keep it on the light side a little bit longer, uh, he's preparing, do, would you agree that he's preparing way too much food for four people? Um, oh yeah. It's that's like, way too an elaborate dinner for not only too much, but it's also way too elaborate, no matter how important this ritual that they do is just, and it's gotta be like a filmmaker's choice to show it because there's just, I find it hard that anybody would put all that much effort for a, a, an every Sunday dinner. I, the daughter has a line when she's with her ex-boyfriend and she says, uh, she, she grew up in a restaurant setting, so she mm. always cooks too much. And I get the sense that Mr. Chu, you, yeah. know, you know, he's a master chef through and through. So he's just going to go through all of that effort because he's a perfectionist. Yeah. And uh, like, sorry, it seems like a familiar routine because like at the end of each meal, they're putting everything away into cartons so they can be eaten again on some other day or they can be handed out to friends. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. They're probably, they're probably, it's probably, that's probably going to last the whole week. Um, I don't think yeah. he cooks like that every day. However, I have to say, when I was in grad school, I, I had a Chinese roommate for three and a half years uh, who was a fairly decent cook. Uh, and I, I, as far as I remember, I never saw him just throw something quick in the microwave. Everything that I ever seen him cook was always had some degree of, uh, of complexity to it and some degree of, you know, mixing different spices and preparing something more elaborate, way more elaborate than I would do. So, I, I mean, it's also, I guess, part of the culture that, you know, like they don't just throw something in the oven really quick or put two slices of bread together with some meat in between and that call it lunch. Uh, I don't think, I don't think uh, they do that, that like we are due uh, to, to the detriment of our own health, perhaps, perhaps, although he did use a lot of butter and, and oil, so maybe not so much. Yeah, you do see that younger characters, the more westernized characters, they are eating fast food or they're working in fast food joints. Like um, the this girl's name, um, Shang Shang, I think. Yeah, she and her classmates have got fast food cartons on their desks when Mr. Chu brings like um, s some of his uh, sumptuous uh, feasts in his own lunchboxes and then his feasts replace the fast food cartons. And there's um, the youngest daughter, she works in a Wendy's. Yeah, and, and so, he even so says that, at some point that anything can pass for and he throws the name of a dish nowadays, he says. Yeah, I think it's like... Uh, uh, Joy dragon Rick, dragon something dragon phoenix or oh, whole shark fin yeah some whole shark fin um stuff like just went bad in the past yeah well yeah yeah well that scene is also i mean i think it kind of yeah i mean one thing that i have to say is hang ang lee doesn't 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 leave things very ambiguous he makes sure sure to hammer on themes themes it's several times like the examples with fast food restaurants like the younger daughter working in one and him saying later on when he's this is after he's retired and someone is trying to convince him to come back to to the restaurant he says that there's nobody appreciates this anymore it's just you can do anything and they will pass for this dish um and then the shark fin soup where you know obviously the the people that they probably order from are a younger generation at least that's the assumption that i made and they didn't really know and he just thought anything could pass for shark fin they could just it was throw it in them it was a dish created for the governor's son's wedding and there's a shot where the maitre d is looking on nervously as the governor's father i assume it's the father is eating it and yeah. gives a nod of approval 
Yeah, because he saved it. He was he knew how to use this fake ingredient to make something else out of it. Yeah, that was a great sequence where he just storms into the kitchen. He tosses his coat to the sides and he puts on his chef's whites. <laughs> and everybody surrounds him like he's trying to like organize the next attack, the next at military attack to like I don't know, like uh, kick out the Nazis or something. But he's, just, <laughs> yeah, he's trying to decide like what to do with this dish that's gone bad. Yeah, the general marshalling the troops. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that's what it looks like. He's like I. I don't know how we're going to do this, guys, but by the end of it, we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's exactly what he said. He said, it's very like action, action hero-y line where he says, I don't know, but I'll figure something out. Yeah, I lo- he's uh, like, he's such a good character. and um, He's a very good actor, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the actor actually, I think he was, uh, he was in um, Chiang Kai-shek's army that fought against the communists, I read. Hmm. on wikipedia page and he had a career in television and movies playing like um gangsters but he was also in um the big taiwanese movie called the uh 800 or 800 heroes um i don't think i've seen that yeah it's got bridget lynn it's from the late 1970s um uh, an early bridget lynn role and um it's about like this famous defense of a warehouse against Japanese forces in the ni- late 1930s, 1939. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, for better or for worse, most of my Taiwanese cinema uh, uh, knowledge is from what they call the new wave, so 80s to 90s. Yeah. Uh, I, I Fortunately, I have not seen many before that, although perhaps I should. I, I have to admit, yeah, I'm in the same situation as you. I just read about his career on Wikipedia. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, that's. I mean, that's fine. People, people that are interested, uh, even maybe me, I will probably look it up if we have the time. Um, but yeah, and I think, um, uh, what I was gonna say about this? Oh, yeah. So I think this point of you know, like nostalgia that like Ang Lee brings forth, or this clash between the old and the new, which is very Faulknerian, I find. Uh, like uh, that he does um i think it's a, it's a good it makes a good contrast for with the film in in a in a strange way with the film that we brought last time uh that we talked about last time and that's audition because that also is directly commenting on tradition however i think takashi miike is very adamant about traditions being outdated and we have to move past them whereas i think Ang Lee takes a more nostalgic approach, and he's, I think even though I do think in the end tradition loses or at least concedes certain part to the new ways of life, uh, because uh, in a sense I do think the director himself has a certain uh, aura of nostalgia and and uh, longing for the traditions that he, that is sort of pre- prevalent throughout the film. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm using the term correctly but it's kind of like this ex machina which is kind of like you've got this character who's been on the side who relieves the daughters of the responsibility of looking after the father yeah so they don't actually have to uh it, it kind of like resets the balance so to speak so like the big conflict between the second daughter and the father um is resolved but it's at the expense of somebody else they didn't make a decision in a sense yeah the, she an they, active like, decision to to do it or not yeah it's like she doesn't have to sacrifice anything at the end 
and the old order um, remains. Yeah, and I think, uh, and I think I'm, I'm, if I had to make a choice, I think I'm, I'm a little bit more on the side of Mike, where I say get rid of the old traditions, uh, uh, rather than keep it. But of course, I definitely see the, the, you know, the, the difficulty and nostalgia that Ang Lee perhaps feels, uh, especially as someone who, who has, for better or worse, moved away from home, and it kind of, kind of misses that part of his childhood, perhaps. Hmm. I think that, yeah, again, just to go back to like an earlier comment, like the more experience you have, the more age um, that you have, uh, the more, the, the older that you are, like you will recognize the second daughter, like all of the daughters, um, plights and their desires and, um, like the, the difficulty in having, um, a parent who's growing up and you realize that you've got some responsibility to them, uh, but you've also got like this, pull of individualism that you want to go out strike out there in the world and make your own mark yeah and i've always i mean i've always had an easier time identified with the middle daughter uh but i've always found her character to be maybe the more nuanced maybe the more interesting uh not not that the other two daughters are badly written i mean they're they're excellent characters in their own way but i i've always found them a little bit more uh, archetypal both the younger daughter, which is her role is maybe the most minor of the three, uh, but also the older daughter, the Christian one. Um, it's, it's all, she also kind of fits slightly into a, a stereotypical role that you often see in cinema. Whereas I find the middle daughter to be very, a very original character in a sense, very, I mean, she has that sort of business, uh, abstract businesswoman. She was tapping on the computer doing something, who knows what, uh, the projection uh, of mm. prices, which sounds kind of vague. But in terms of her relationship with her father and her relationship with uh, her love life and her dealing with it, I find her uh, the most interesting, the most nuanced character of the three. She's definitely the most complex. The younger yeah, daughter, exactly, yeah. like a punchline. <laughs> like... These her two older sisters who've been struggling through relationships. She's leapfrogged over them. <laughs> she's entered into a happy relationship, and she's a mother before either. Yeah, uh, the, the the the. I mean, the, especially the older daughter. I find her maybe the most uh, archetypal because she's sort of the typical reserved woman who who doesn't trust men, but then finds the right guy and just throws herself onto him. That's a, I mean, that's a very overused trope in in cinema in general, not just Asian cinema. So I've, I've always, even though I do think her uh, her plight is a little bit uh, is merits examination, I still find her maybe the least interesting of all the three. Yeah, the uh, repression, um, sexual repression, especially uh, from a, yeah. um, a religious um, angle, is quite a common theme in stories. Uh, but her storyline, um, especially when she discovers that the love letters have been written by students, um, I think the audience is probably already anticipating that. But that that's quite moving in itself. Yeah, I, I think the film is very well written uh, in general. Mm. So, so it's not. I don't think any character leaves a lot to be desired but i think if i had to it just I, i've always found the uh, more to see in the middle daughter than the other two yeah there's definitely a constant push and pull between um jia jen and her father and yeah. that that powers the film and and i think and i think the the uh the writers definitely recognize this because the, she is featured more prominently and it's also 
uh, she, that's how the film ends, right? He says daughter and she says father and it just cuts to black and that's how the film ends, which I've always, I love how the the film ends, the the final shot. It's very moving and it, I think it's, uh, it's capi- beautiful. Yeah, capitalizes on, you know, what the film is really about. You know, it is, I do think primarily it is about tradition versus modernity, but it is, it is also about people navigating relationships in a changing world it's i, I wrote uh, there was a this show to the um, new york winter showcase asian film festival um, mm. it re rescreened there and i reviewed it for v cinema and the way i said uh, that i think this is a coming of age uh, type of story but not your conventional coming of age story it's just a, a coming of age for a culture as it moves to modernity but it's also a coming of age for uh, literally for the younger daughter as she you know gets pregnant and moves in into um to the um to the house of her boyfriend or whatever a a, com- a sort of a coming of age story for uh for the father transfer a coming of age of course is just a, a specific a specific type of transformation and every character in this film has to sort of to to go past uh, to transform past a certain barrier that he's keeping there behind and i think the middle daughter probably had the hardest time doing that the father didn't necessarily have time hard time transforming he just did not want to reveal his transformation out of fear of you know um appearing uh insensitive to his daughter or something like that yeah there's um like in the, the scene with the um uh uncle wen in the hospital where he's talking to Jar Jen and he comments like he says like the father has so much love and affection he's so proud of you but he can't show it and um like you can see it when he's walking around the house and um he's waking up his daughters and that like there's always a note of concern but he always has to assume a role as a sort of um paternal figure in their lives uh, so to engage in a little bit of fan theories, did you think Uncle Wen knew about his girlfriend, uh, about uh, Sylvia Chang's character that they were dating? Uh, for him to mention, um, you know, sex and love when the two old men are like uh, in the aftermath of the kitchen scene of the wedding, uh, I think that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a little bit too tongue in cheek there to to not to not for that not to be the case. Yeah, and I think it's because these two guys, they've known each other for a long time. Yeah, the way they talk, their relationship seems very close. Yeah, there's a, a sort of fraternal bond. And the, like uh, Mr. Chu is more likely to confide in him than he is to show emotion to his daughters. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad you mentioned that, scene because uh, this is, again, this is very minor, a very minor complaint. But I, I hate when writers do this, screenwriters or novelists, and it, it's, it always to me is indicates a, a sort of an, uh, an amateur move, which is, would make sense because this was a, a early in the careers of the writers, but hiding information from the audience that should not, that it doesn't make sense to be hidden uh, and intentionally mm-hmm. misleading the audience. Like this film does that a couple of times, like with uh, the father's uh, heart scare, uh, mm. uh, and the, like, obviously that conversation between them not actually revealing uh, his relationship with um, uh, Ji Rong. Uh, there's really, there's really no good reason for the audience not to have received that information, other than the writers intentionally keeping the audience and even misleading them from finding that information. And I just like I, that might be a personal pet peeve, but I never like that when readers do that. I prefer, I prefer having a consistent point of view where uh, we, sh- the uh, audience, 
knows what the character should know in that scene instead of the character intentionally not revealing information. Like, um, do you think that keys into um, the scene where um, Mr. Chu reveals the relationship with the daughter? Do you think the writers wanted to put the audience in the position of the other family members? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely there was there was that gotcha moment that the author, yeah. that twist that the authors, that the author, the the writers and the director wanted to have that emotional response, uh, and it does work. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but it's. Uh, uh, I feel like there's it seems better, cheap. <laughs> it seems cheap. Exactly. That's that's the perfect word for it. It seems like a cheap, and it's it's something that I very often see amateur writers do, not experienced writers. But it, it's such a minor. I mean, this film has so much more to offer that like that is, um, that is almost not a problem at all. Yeah, it's it's. I it's it, I think it makes second and third time viewings much more interesting because you can go into scenes where it is foreshadowing. Yeah, and, and you don't you have say, to, and you that doesn't that is that you've kind of you've done an one over on the film because now you already know the information you should have known, so now you yes. can focus on the other stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yes. I mean it's 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 certainly it's certainly fine. It's just uh, I just wish they'd handle that a little bit better. Uh, and of course, in okay. film, it's in worse films. This is a lot more problem. Like, have you ever seen a film where you know, like, it seems like the whole thing is just done so there can be a twist at the end, even though it never makes sense. Uh, that sounds like quite a lot of Dario Argento's late filmography. To be yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, I mean, that would be a far worse offender than Idrig Men Woman is, but it's just it contains an element of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Moving, moving on from that. I said my piece. I feel a lot lighter now. Uh, so now we can we can move on to the ex the things that this film does excellently. And the thing the things that maybe makes you uh, ask questions. And of course, there are certain things that are maybe different perceived differently in Western culture versus Asian culture. So that's a factor that we must consider. But what do you think of the age difference between the relationship of Chu and uh, Sylvia Chang's character, Jean Rong? I think it plays in like into the writer's intentions of wrong footing the audience. Like we we view all the characters. Like I think we would be in the position of the daughters as viewing, and um, Sylvia Chang's um, character's mother as viewing it as wrong that such like a person that could be her father is actually her lover. Yeah, and in, fa- in fact, well, I don't necessarily know that Sylvia Chang thinks it's wrong, except she's very embarrassed. And obviously, there's obviously it's not culturally accepted there because otherwise it wouldn't be a source of conflict. It's it seems like a, a natural bond between them, but like one of the themes of the film is age, and we consider uh, choose age. Like I think the actor was sixty four when he filmed this, sixty four, sixty five, and um, you know we feel like uh, he's becoming weaker as he grows older, and so it seems unlikely, and then. Like it plays into that theme, and it plays into our yeah. surprise at the very end. Yeah, it's also part of the misdirection that I just complained yeah. about earlier. Like he, like he's not yeah. really he's very healthy, but I guess Ang Lee just chooses to show him like like complaining and getting all those massages. Although I'm pretty sure he's getting the massages because just Jin Rong's mother is driving him crazy. Yeah, it's there's, it's not a coincidence that he gets a massage after he's had yeah. a conversation yeah and you can see it in his face uh, that's <laughs> it just needs funny. to get the tension out yeah yeah and he puts that towel when he's in the bath and he puts that towel and you can see just see him like like uh sighing very heavily 
into yeah. that scene. So yeah, that those are he he gets he gets quite a bit of comedy out of out of her. Like he does a good job at using her. So well, she's also somewhat of a stereotypical Asian mother personality, but he does get quite a, a bit of mm. mileage out of her. Mm. Agreed. But but still, even even like Jin Rong mothers, we would never get a hint that she ever approved of the relationship. The last we see of her, she's fainting, and you know, of course, he cuts to a year later, and we don't know what happened. In fact, I would go as far as to say that we don't even know if their daughter ever, their daughter, his daughters ever approved of the relationship. They probably accepted it. I mean, that's that's evident enough, but it's it's never it's never clear whether they they ever approved of it. I think. Um... The general tone of the film is um, so sort of like if bouncy. It's there's a lot of comedy. There's just as much comedy as there is drama, and um, I think it's safe to assume that like everything settles at the end. Like Shan Shan is with her grandmother, and Mister Chu is going to pick her up later, and um, everybody's sort of relaxed. They're living their own lives now. I think so. I it, I mean that that. I would agree with that. There's also the only thing that causes me a little bit of reservation is I I I get the impression that like the daughters don't see that their father is often at the end, but of course that could may as well be that they've moved on with their lives, not necessarily because they don't approve of their new stepmother. Oh yeah, that's definitely I think that's like one of the things about the film is like he has like this this sense that these daughters have to be married off. They have to live their own lives. It's like a, it's like a Ozu film, I guess, where you're waiting. For, um, like there's this tension between the father being left behind on his own and the daughters moving out for their own happiness. And um, I get the sense that um, with Sylvia Chang's character Jin Rong taking over, like sort of caretaker role, <clears throat> I suppose she relieves the daughters of having to um, take on that responsibility that confucian tradition would demand of them yeah absolutely um yeah and 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 of course i'm glad you mentioned ozu because i think just like ang lee despite what however however ozu feels made and with you know the daughter choosing the non-traditional route or whatever there's still like clearly in Oz's voice as presented in the film. There's clearly that sense of nostalgia and that, that sense of longing for the traditional, uh, um, the traditional way. Sort of hinting that you know, even though we have to accept the change, part of part of me thinks that or part of Ozu and part of Ang Lee thinks that somehow the traditional ways are better. Um, there's like that sense of of sadness that we've had we've had to accept this new life like all except maybe except the uh or even the older daughter all all of his daughters choose non-traditional parts the younger daughter doesn't even get married she gets pregnant and moves in with her boyfriend the younger daughter doesn't i mean the middle daughter doesn't get pregnant enough doesn't get married at all uh and no hint that she might even get married at all and the older daughter maybe does follow the more traditional route but it's kind of too sudden um and maybe when she was expected that she would take care of her father the the, the whole time, and she just turns on an eighty and says, "Bye bye, I'm out of here." <laughs> yeah, but even even like that happens, the father has to accept that, and the audience is to accept that. But just that that sense of sadness at the end kind of makes me believe that Angley thinks like this was the ending that we needed to have, but not necessarily the ending that I wanted for this family. I think that's a sense that's emphasized by um, returning to the family home 
yeah, after exactly. it's been stripped of furniture and it's been sold off and everybody's separate and you can't help but feel that sense of sadness and nostalgia absolutely for, for those happier scenes and livelier scenes that you a family being together that you saw earlier yeah and I, I do think that's still secondary to to his trying to mend the relationship between father and daughter which was strained from the beginning of the film and presumably for their entire lives if you know based on some of their conversations and i do so and i do appreciate him kind of focusing on that more and trying to make that the, the forefront of the drama in the film yeah i agree it creates an interesting um, tension in the film, and um, although it's um, it's cleanly resolved in um, in a way that is way too convenient. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that tension still remains. Although um, the sense that family dynamics have been healed at the end when they're able to say father and daughter. Yeah, and I think that's maybe the one difference. Well. In this case, the one difference between Ang Lee and uh, Ozu, because I f- feel like Ozu in this case would not have given the father that exit, that convenient no. exit of, uh, well, he'll end up, he, you know, we will, all the daughters end up moving away and the person who was supposed to take care of him doesn't. Um, and oh, conveniently, well, he has another wife now, so she, he'll be fine. I feel like Ozu would not, I can't, um, I can't remember a specific name of the movie that has a similar plot, but I feel like Ozu would not. The father would, if this indeed happened, the father would end up alone and somehow managing, uh, because that's the cycle of life in Ozu's films, whereas Angli is maybe a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, it's like um, Chishu Ryu and Setsuko Hara are like Ozu's father and daughter combination. What's the name of that film? Well, they've done father and daughter in multiple films, but what's that one name of that film? Where it's specifically the, the plot on is, is the daughter doesn't want to get married, but she has to get married. And he's because, trying to marry her off. Yeah. And he's at the bar at the end. Yeah. And he's drinking with a friend. And, um, I don't know. Is it is it something like Life's a uh, Series of Goodbyes or something like that? Is that like? I think, no, I think it's one of the season movies. Okay. Uh, spring it? spring something. Yeah, I, I'm, sure, can, I'm sure this is very fun for the audience while we are trying to struggle to remember the title <laughs> of the film. But for some reason, I'm I can just picture bought, the ending. But yeah, I can't me too. Me too. I remember. I remember that. I've, I think that's the most recent Mo, Ozu film that I've seen. That's why I remember it so vividly. Yeah, it, like this Setsuko Hara's wedding, and then it's Chisu Ryu alone, well, at the bar of a friend. And I just can't remember which film it is. Exactly. But um, anyway, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it maybe could we'll be any number of films. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, a lot of his films have are similarly themed, so it's not. It's it. We're justified in forgetting it. Uh, I, oh, maybe it's late spring. An autumn afternoon. I, I think it's one of the season. So late spring. I'm reading the description. Noriko is a 27 years old and still living with her widowed father. Everybody just talk her into marrying, but Noriko wants to stay at home caring for her father. So I do think it's late spring, 1949. Yeah, I don't think it's an autumn afternoon because I distinctly remember being no. Sesko Hara is oh, not. But in this oh, one. this is also this is also uh, uh, the same plotline. Aging an autumn afternoon reads an aging widow arranges arranges a marriage for his only daughter. Hmm. <laughs> so very similar, but I guess it doesn't have that plot element where the daughter doesn't want to get married. I don't think I've hmm. seen an autumn afternoon. Uh, I think you're right. It is late autumn. Late spring. Uh, late spring, late spring. Oh, there's the same same plot in quite a few. Yeah. But, uh, 
I mean, he has. I mean, I think he has early summer, late uh, early afternoon, late spring, uh, an autumn afternoon, or something. A lot of these seasons that are very similarly. I mean, they're he's sort of like his 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 view of. I think it's Buddhists uh, the, the mm. source of viewing life as seasons, and I think these that's that's why they have similar plots because mm. he's kind of using that Buddhist theme of of equating life cycles or parts stages of life to seasons. Yeah. Yeah, and like late spring is, you know, youth is the spring of one's life, but she's far, he's close to the end of that. That's why they're kind of hurrying to marry her. Mm. But anyway, yeah, so that it's very similar to that film, but I think that's the one distinction between Ozu and Ang Lee, that Ozu does not give his characters that easy escape that Ang Lee does. And I'm not necessarily holding it against him. I, I do appreciate his optimism, but I do agree with you that it is a little bit slightly a cop-out and slightly a convenient escape to yeah. what would have been a maybe an unhappy ending for the family. Yeah, and, and um, I think that's... I agree with you, yeah. Uh, you, you did mention earlier, and this is uh, maybe jumping around a little bit, but you did mention earlier about the the, uh, the main actor. What's his name again? Uh, Siung Lung. Yeah. Forgive pronunciation. Yeah, I could swear that uh, uh, both the middle daughter and the older daughter, I had they looked familiar to me, and I could swear that I that I had seen them before. And maybe I did, but when I looked at the filmography, I didn't recognize any of the films. Well, I didn't recognize most of the film. I think I think I saw some Tsai Ling Ming there, that another ta- famous Taiwanese director that I've seen a couple of films from. Yeah, um, the the uh, Yu Wen Wang who plays the youngest daughter. She was in um, how was it? Uh, Rebels of the Neon God, I think. Yeah, that's that. That sounds familiar. Um, I do think that the older daughter looked familiar to me because she looks a little bit like Lucy Liu, the American okay. actress. Uh, ah, but uh, yeah, Sylvia Chang. Just to go back to our um, talk, uh, was it Police Story? Oh yeah, yeah. She was uh, all about Arlong. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So it's starting to. T- so there is a little bit of family of. Uh, uh, of familiarity there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that like like you, um my knowledge of Taiwanese cinema is like pretty uh contained in the uh, modern directors, so for me it's not even modern, is that specific period of like the I think it's known as the new wave, although again don't quote me on it, but like eighties to nineties. I'm I don't think I've kept up with Taiwanese cinema like in the late two thousands and even certainly not modern Taiwanese cinema. Yeah, I've started watching um Taiwanese cinema thanks to V Cinema. Um uh allowing me the chance to review um films. Uh black and white films from the nineteen sixties, uh, experimental films. Um, but, uh, definitely, um, Ang Lee, um, Edward Yang, those are the names that I'm more familiar with. Yeah. And even Ang Lee, I think he's not done any, any, any Taiwanese film since. Is, uh, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, a Taiwanese film? I uh, definitely know it's, it's an American Definitely shot production. in China. Yeah. I think that might, I think he, he kind of moved to China after that. I think he did Last Caution in China. Or was it Hong Kong? Uh, that's a good point. I think it's Chinese, but maybe. 2007. I think that's... Uh, it doesn't say. Uh, it's, uh, it says country, United States, China, and Taiwan. So I guess it was a co- co- co-production. Yeah. Uh, 
it's set in Hong Kong, so one would and in Shanghai, so at least part of the film was um, okay. Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, still, and I think that's his last Chinese uh, Chinese language film that he did. After that, he's only done English speaking films. I think. Uh, Life of Pi, uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Gemini Man. The Gemini Man um, was savaged by the critics, but I can remember um, uh, while in work, I talked to a mother and her son who had just seen it, and uh, they really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen uh, the, the last film of his that I saw was Life of Pi. Yeah, what did you think of that one? Uh, mixed feelings. I I think I think it's a gorgeous film to watch. Beautiful cinematography, beautiful shots. Um, beautiful very, CG. Yeah, well, you know, inevitable. <laughs> and uh, and you know, a great great job at keeping a, a a story that would be very hard to make entertaining to actually keeping it interesting. Uh, that mm-hmm. and the 127 hours, I think they that also did a good job at that one. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen 127 Hours. I don't think I have. It's the film with... Um, I keep playing. I think it's directed by the guy who did Train Spotting. What's his name? Danny Boyle, about the guy that got trapped. Yes. In the desert. James Franco. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's that's a similar film where you have like one person is to essentially keep your attention for two hours. And I think he did very good of that. The story, yeah. however, and this might be a virtue of the original novel, I, I found it very anticlimactic to just that's the, the best way i put it out it's it's i don't know i i i missed the point it was the film was trying to make some sort of point about religion and i just completely missed it, it i didn't get what he was trying to say and i don't think he did a very good job at making that point otherwise okay. it, it was it was a very good film yeah uh okay so uh, uh we've talked about other things but is there anything else that you think we uh we could discuss, we could add about uh, Eat, Drink, Men, Woman. Uh, what did you think about um, the uh, I, time frame of this film? So, um, did you did you find it troubling at all? For example, like uh, it feels like it's all done in a compressed space of time, but uh, this storyline feels like it's done in a compressed space of time. Uh, like a few a few weeks, but it goes on for quite a few months, and a lot happens. Yeah, yeah. Like the in a, in one scene, the youngest daughter meets like a guy, and then a couple of scenes later, she's announcing she's pregnant. I was just like totally taken by surprise. At, like how many months have elapsed? <laughs> yeah, it, I think I think that abruptness is is part of the film's point, and maybe the director. You know, obviously not not very experienced at this point. Maybe he didn't do a great job at kind of conveying that because it does. The film does give you the impression that this family has been in a sort of a stalemate for a long yeah. time, and then, like in a matter of weeks, everything just changes. Yeah. In fact, there's even scenes. Uh, I can't remember exactly what scene I'm thinking about, but there's even scenes where where you think like it's not even the same day from one shot from one scene to another, but the characters are wearing the same clothes. So it's immediately after actually, but it just feels like so much has happened that, uh, that is like, it's, it's, it should be longer, but it's just, everything happens very quickly. Yeah. It's like, um, 
like with a Japanese film, for example, you might have um, the seasons passing by and um, trees, like cherry blossoms blooming, and then you know the leaves falling off for autumn, and, or, or an Obon festival to mark the passage of time. Whereas this one is just like leaps and bounds through months. So um, yeah, I was quite interested in finding out what you thought about it. I don't. It doesn't necessarily bother. It doesn't necessarily bother me. I think it's it's you know. Uh, I think it's maybe perhaps a risk that Ang Lee took in choosing to to edit it this way, or maybe the editor, who knows. Uh, but I do think it, like the abruptness is part of the point that you know, like they're, they're, these characters' lives change just so fast, and it's yeah. just by the virtue of compression, it just perhaps if if the same things happen over a span of three years, you know, maybe that's just normal life and it's not worthy of the drama. But by the fact that it happens so quickly. That is what it gives, what makes the conflict for the for the story. Yeah, and it and um, it also adds to the sense of the youngest daughter's um, storyline being a bit of a um, punchline. Yeah, I mean, and like, I mean, I, and I think Angli is perhaps aware of this because that's how when they make the announcements, that's how it happens. The younger daughter just blurts it out in one breath, and then and then he just cuts to her driving away in a taxi. And it's a scene repeated with the oldest daughter. Exactly, and she—it's even yeah. funnier there because she just drags him in. He says his thing, <laughs> and then they, they like ride away in his motorcycle. So I do think that's intentional. Perhaps, you know, perhaps it doesn't hit all the right notes as it should, but I do, I do think like the the it was you know it's an interesting choice by Angley as a director. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh, completely unrelated, but did you notice uh, the uh, Ji Rong's mother, Cecilia Chang's mother? There's one point, and I I noticed this in my most re- so when I watched a couple of nights ago, she's eating an orange, and she's eating like the little white strands. I don't know what you call them. It's not the pith. I don't. I don't know what a pith is. It's not like the inner peel. Yeah, or or the things that are on the outside of the orange, not the skin inside the skin, but yeah, I think it's the pith. Is and it? Is it? Is that what it's called? Yeah, and I I I believe it's like it's got a lot of nutritional value. Does I, it? I I've don't, never don't seen quote anyone. Me on that. I've seen people. I've seen people use the skin for various purposes and maybe eat the skin, but not yeah. that white stuff. And that's what she does. She's holding the orange and she's clearing the pith out. I guess it's called. And it's eating that, and then she eats the orange. I don't know why it bothered me so much in this. Uh, yeah, because the, like we're taught, we're taught to, to to strip it just to I get. get to I get rid of that. I get rid of all of that. It doesn't yeah. taste good at all. Maybe it's nutritional, <laughs> as you say, so that would make sense. I thought it was maybe uh, like a statement uh, from Ang Lee, like kind of conveying in a more visual way how wrong she is for a cook because she doesn't even know how to eat an orange. <laughs> yeah. So I thought maybe that's it, but maybe you're right. I mean, that would make more sense that you know maybe uh, other cultures don't don't throw that away because it has nutritional values. I just get rid of it because it tastes it tastes even worse than the skin. I think it's just weird, stringy. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look into it, but I'm pretty sure I've read somewhere that it's got a lot of uh, nutritional value. And uh, if anybody knows otherwise, feel free to leave a comment on the web page and uh, a link to um, an article about it. Okay, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a great film altogether. So we, we we didn't do this last time because we forgot. But how many stars um, would you give this? And what, where exactly? You don't have to give an exact rating or anything if you don't want to. But where would you put it in in the collection of Ang Lee's filmography? 
Uh, I've only seen a few of Ang Lee's films, and um, this is probably uh, my favourite one. Uh, I'd say it's a really good entry point into um, Taiwanese cinema, perhaps Chinese cinema as well, because I would it gives agree with you that. A, uh, yeah, a lot of themes that are pertinent to Chinese culture, Chinese diaspora, um, Confucian values, and um, and the history of Taiwan and China. And uh, like the drama, I really enjoyed it. The comedy was fun. Um, I the characters were all sympathetic, and they were all complex enough to keep me engaged. And um, I feel like this drama is like universal. Um, if you know more about Chinese culture, if you've got more experience in life, it gains uh, more in depth. Like the uh, a richer subtext comes out. Um, and so it's uh, four and a half stars. Yes, yeah, I'd like this would be a good entry point into Asian cinema for people. At the very least, you get the foodies who love seeing depictions of um, meals on the big screen um, interested. Yeah, um, I would absolutely agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, I think filmmakers like Ang Lee are perfect for these. Not that they have to make these kind of films, but they are whether intentionally or unintentionally perfect for these gateway films, because he clearly understands how the West works, but he also understands how the East works by virtue of growing up there. Because otherwise, I don't mm. think he would be as successful in making American films as he has been. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think this is a, an excellent gateway film. Uh, it, it's enhanced by knowledge of Chinese culture, but it's also very enjoyable as, for if you are not. As I when I watched it, I, had, I was very ignorant of Asian culture, and I still got a lot of mileage out of, out of the film because I do think, like you said, the uh, most of the messages are universal and the relationships and the the evolution of especially the middle daughter and her father and their interactions mm. together. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you, I would put this. Uh, this is my favorite Angley film. I've seen. I I think taking guess. I think I've seen more more uh, Angley films that than you have. I think I've. I think I've seen everything except the very first one, Pushing Hands, and his last two ones, Gemini Man and the uh, the one that he did before one, which I think it's an it's a war film or a military film. Um, uh, but because I, I'm pretty sure I've seen the trailer, and I think it was. Uh, very, very underperforming both critically and in the box office, although that's what I remember. Yeah, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Yeah. I haven't seen The Hulk, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not, not uh, great, but not terrible. Well, I, I, it's good to see an auto <laughs> tackle a comic book movie. Yeah, and before, I, I before that see... was even a thing. I can't wait to see Scorsese um, do the next Avengers movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want him to do Spider Man because it's set in New York, so at least he'd he'd know the city. Mm, I'd like well, to see Spider Man taking down, you know, a, a <laughs> Al Pacino type mob or a, a Robert De Niro type mob man. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and Spider Man crossed with Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, like Jason versus Freddy or Aliens versus Predator. <laughs> you know, like Spider Man versus the Irishman. <laughs> I would like That's to see that too, see. but um, I, let's, uh, would it be a de-aged Robert De Niro? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, like a, a de-aged Robert De Niro with a de-aged Tobey Maguire playing, yeah. playing the... Although he's not that old, so I guess he could pull it off with makeup. Uh, I, uh, into the Spider-Verse, I suppose. Yeah, um, and, they, and they could bring... They could bring... Uh, um, um, 
Crap. Marlon Brando's face as CGI, just like they did with uh, Princess Leia. Or uh, the, yeah, um, Rogue One, where they brought back Peter Cushing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Which oh, I'm more uh, upset about Peter Cushing than I was upset about Princess Leia, because at least they had committed to her as being a character, so they kind of had to do it. But Peter Cushing, there was no reason to do him at all, just let him rest in peace. I think Rogue One was the last Star Wars movie I watched, so I lost interest after that. Uh, I haven't seen all of them. I, I, I haven't seen the last one, but I, I would agree. I think I enjoyed Rogue One the most out of all of them. Yeah, it's, it's got a different feel uh, to the other Star Wars movies. Um, a friend of mine who's really in, into um, superhero movies, Marvel movies, he's very excited that um, the next Spider-Man movie reunites um, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, uh, uh, unites Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and the new Spider-Man. Wait, uh, how? Uh, I'm not sure how, but apparently um, they're all on board to do the same project. And... Um, uh sam raimi the guy that does the evil dead the guy that did the evil dead trilogy and um a simple plan well he did uh, the first two spider-mans which in my opinion they're the two best spider-mans at least the, se- oh my, the second one yeah i would agree and so would my friend um that he's uh sam raimi's doing um the next doctor strange so okay. that, that's your chance that's another chance to see an auto tackle a comic book movie. yeah I mean, I've I've never been into these comic books. I, I watch them because usually, almost always, it's because my friends want to go to the theaters and do it, and I just hang out. Yeah. Um, uh, I I would say, however, that like I I I used to be a big fan of the '90s animated Spider-Man, and uh, which is, from what I understand, very, very faithful to a lot of comic issues. And they do go into different multiverses into that. So, Into the Spider-Verse is not the first one to do that. Okay. That was, part of the original story where spider-man goes and meets a lot of his alter egos so marvel doing adapting those kind of stories would not be uh out of uh, out of context like they're, they're, yeah. those are in the original comics yeah i i watched the animated i probably watched the same animated series that you did um my patience for comic book movies uh isn't as great though um i think the uh last one i watched is probably the first iron man movie and um, i haven't watched any since yeah, uh, yeah, same. I, it's not for me, but if people enjoy them, I I have no objections against that. No, they're killing cinema. <laughs> uh, that's also a concern, but at least if people are going to the cinemas to see this, that's better than not going to the cinema at all. Um, absolutely. Um, hopefully when cinemas reopen, um, like all of these comic book movies that have been kept in waiting can bring audiences back. To save the big screen. Uh, okay, so uh, I would like to end, uh, to bring up my other controversial opinion uh, because it's related okay. to Ang Lee, um, and hopefully people don't hate me for this. But like I said, I watched, uh, I, I was became, became familiar with Ang Lee in high school. This was the uh, wedding banquet was the first one, and then I watched this one, uh, Eat, Drink, Men, Woman, and I would put this on top of me on 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 the on top of the list. Um, and then I would put Brokeback Mountain after that, like second, because I really enjoyed that too. But then I, I watched, I think either the fourth or the fifth Ang Lee movie that I watched still in high school. And I haven't seen since was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And Mm. I hated that movie. I, uh, again, it's been more than 10 years, uh, pretty much exactly 10 years since I've seen it. I remember seeing it because it was because all of the hype and the Academy Award nominations. And I just remember thinking, uh, why do people like this? This is terrible. Uh, and that's my, controver- my final controversial opinion for the night. 
I did not like cr- Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, uh, I, but I, I was in high it. school, and I was also uh, <laughs> don't remember at all. So maybe if I watched it now, I would find it great. So please keep that in mind. Yeah, I'm not the, the biggest uh, Wuja um, fan, and um, I was uh, a little bored by all the antics in the desert. Um, I was always more interested in um, Charion Fat's character. Um, I suppose that maybe if I watched it now, I'd have a different opinion as well. When 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 did you last see it? Probably when it came out at the same time. Oh, 2000. Okay. No, I've seen yeah, it later. Yeah, because it was that. such a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and its reputation stayed on. It's not like it died like a lot of things do. I mean, it's still considered highly regarded. Okay. So is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close this episode? No, uh, I think I can't think of anything else. I think I said enough. Yeah, and it's certainly a film that I would wholeheartedly. I, I didn't give my rating five out of five. Um, you know, just because it's so accessible, it's it's so enjoyable, and it's I think it's you don't have to be familiar with um, Asian culture, even Taiwanese culture, to enjoy it. I think its its themes are very universal. So mm-hmm. seek it out and watch it. If you're in the U.S., you can probably get this from your local library. It's a film that's very easily available. In fact, I didn't have to go to the library; I could stream it from my library's website. I'm not sure if services like that are, are available in the U.K. I would imagine they are. Yeah, I believe so. Like I only get books from the library, but um, there was a, t- a period in time when I was getting like uh, DVDs, Takeshi Kitano movies. Oh yeah, I mean DVDs certainly, but they also you can also stream from the library. Uh, libraries here have subscribed to certain streaming services, and they this this is where I watched it actually. Okay, I'm gonna have to look into it. Yeah, so Hoopla and Overdrive, and um, uh, what else? There's another one. Uh, there's another one that is like exclusive to libraries and you know as long as they they work with your library card so as long as you have the library card you have access to these streaming services and this one is available on Hoopla so check it out mm-hmm. if you're in the US and I'm sure it's easier to get if you're in the UK as well mm-hmm. yeah it is easy to get yeah uh, so that's it for this episode of Heroic Purgatory and Asian Cinema Podcast uh, please follow our website, follow us on Twitter, as I, and I'll put links to that as usual in the description and in the website. And uh, please watch the movie, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.